Yes, this is my mic that I used for the BBC. Oh, see, we're dealing with it's, professionals here today, clearly. It's a lovely mic. It's a lovely mic. It makes me sound good. And it's all going through a lovely vocal box that I've had oh my gosh, for quite some time. So, yes, we are dealing with some professionals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, we're good to start then, I guess. Great. Well, hello. Welcome back to Where Love Lives with me, Lula LaVey. How the devil are you? Sorry I've not been here for a while as I've been far too busy gallivanting across Europe, but never fear, I'm back now in time to share with you this final episode of this first series. Boo-hoo. I've decided to go out with a bang with super-duper special guest, Anna Matronic. She barely needs an introduction. Come on, you must all know her. But for those who need a quick reminder, Anna was co-lead vocalist in the gender-defying mega-glam rock disco outfit The Scissor Sisters. Her show Disco Devotion aired on Radio 2 for five years until just recently. She's also a prolific DJ electrifying dance floors far and wide from Fire Island to Bristol Pride. She also loves robots to the point where she has bionic circuitry tattooed on her right shoulder and is also a passionate supporter of queer and trans rights. I'm delighted to have her on today's show talking about the things she loves from queer communities and disco history through to her very sociable cat Bootsy who joins us mid-interview. One thing this podcast has done over the last 12 episodes is champion women across a range of creative platforms. So this is a very special episode to conclude this series. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. This is Thank very you. exciting. And for those who are listening, this is our third uh, our third go at this interview. And we made it this time. We made it. Third time's a charm. It is, always. So tell us about what you've been up to. Like, what's been happening in your world? I do know that your show, uh, Radio 2 show, has finished last week. Is that right? Yes. Uh, it finished on the 18th, 19th of uh, June. And um, the... Let's see, the week I finished it, I played in Salem, Massachusetts, which was really fun. And then last, uh, just this past Friday, I played in Fire Island. Um, so that's, I'm actually fresh off my Fire Island weekend. Pride okay, weekend. so you DJing? What were you doing? I was DJing, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, DJing um, at the Pavilion in the Pines. Uh-huh. And um, and even though I'm, I'm more of a Cherry Grove gal myself, that's a, that's a, there's a, so this is uh, all in Fire Island, right? You're this is about? the Fire Island culture. Are you Cherry Grove or the Pines? Oh, what's the difference? I've, I mean, I, um, I haven't actually been there. I nearly went what, there, but we yeah. didn't quite make it. One of the areas, the Pines, is um, ha- the houses are bigger and have pools. And well, some of the houses in Cherry Grove have pools too. But um, the, there's uh, some really grand modern architecture in the Pines. And Cherry Grove is very bungalows and sea shacks and there are some fabulous houses um but uh cherry grove is kind of where the hippies and the artists go and the pines is a little bit more where uh the party boys go right okay and so Um, i I get it i think i'd be more cherry grove in that case as well i think you probably would there's an amazing saturday night live sketch Yeah. <laughs> called Cherry Grove. Uh, and it's Kate McKinnon, so she knows something about uh, Cherry Grove. And, and it's basically 
uh, there was a reality show that took place in the Pines. So it was like, if you like the Pines, you'll go crazy for Jerry Grove. And it's just like a bunch of lesbians around a dinner table singing along to Annie Lennox. Oh, God, that sounds hilarious. I do like Sunday Night Live. I do do love it. I've got to say, I am a fan. Uh, it's you know that every other sketch is pretty pretty brilliant um but and and in cherry grove there's uh the ice palace which is a storied home of disco so i, I really read love about the ice palace yeah yes. who was the first dj there i've forgotten his name i don't know who the first dj there was but it was founded by michael fesco and um he was a, a broadway chorus boy and uh started ice palace it opened memorial day weekend 1970 that's and right it's been yeah. going ever since yeah and there was an ice palace in um in the city on 57th street i think and um And then he also ran Flamingo, which was a very popular gay disco. So perhaps Um, this is a really good way to sort of um, start your love. So obviously the the theme of this podcast is, you know, where love lives. So talking about people's loves outside of the heteronormative relationships. And one of your one of your loves was talk like looking at um, was obviously about the well, they kind of go both hand in hand disco, the history of disco and the queer community. Yes. I mean, is it possible we can kind of merge these two together? We absolutely can. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like we can't really talk about one without the other, really. No, you can't. Obviously, the queer community is very dear to your heart. Why don't you tell us us about that, about why that's important to you? Well, I... I am from the community. I had a gay parent, mm-hmm. um, and I grew up. He lived in San Francisco and yep. um, and San Jose with his partner, Don. And I grew up very familiar with um, musicals and gay culture and w- what is called called gay culture. But it was just my dad, you know. Mm. Um, but he had a house in the Castro, and I remember seeing leather daddies. Um, you know, walking with their hands in each other's back pockets down the down the so street. How old were you when you you were kind of observing uh, these like scenes? Ten. Yeah. You know, but and 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 it's they're just dressed like bikers. That's yeah. what my you know. It's like oh yeah, those are they they're into biker culture, and that's what, that's how my dad would explain it. You know, and it's so your dad uh, he passed away quite young, didn't he? From what yes, I read, he was fifty. Yeah, that's young. I don't even think he was. Oh yeah, he 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 had just turned fifty. When he passed, yeah. So I think, I mean, that obviously was a huge loss to you. So I mean, yes. So do you think the the loss of him and as a gay parent that made the the community even more richer and more important to you? Do you think? I think so. And um, are we the, getting very deep, very early? I hope that's well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> when you lose somebody to HIV/AIDS, there hmm. is, in 1990, there's only one community that is speaking about it openly. Yeah, and that's sure. The gay community. Um, and so I found refuge because I couldn't talk about it mm. in high school because I went to a very, very conservative high school in Brush Prairie, Washington. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I told most people that my dad had cancer. And just because there's then, so much shame around it then, wasn't there? Yeah. And I also didn't want to deal with the fucking assholes. Mm-mm. Like, I just, like, I don't want to deal with their hate. You know, I didn't, I, you know, my best friend in eighth grade, I'll never forget her, her brother sitting next to him. And there's a news uh, item about HIV AIDS on and he's like, I got a cure for AIDS. And he like pulls, basically pulls an imaginary shotgun up to his, oh my God, up to his eye, you know, and he didn't know my dad was gay. Um, and it, that was before he 
uh, found out he was positive. So it, it was just it was just one of those. It, that's the sort of culture and climate that I was in high school in. Yeah, I mean, this is all very um, familiar. Yeah. I mean, this is because, yeah. you know, we grew up around this, uh, you know, I remember the whole, uh, you know, the, the big ad campaign here in the UK for Ooh, a, yeah. I don't know, it was just uh, terrifying. These, you know, it's just it was scaremongering and homophobic. Yes, 100%. Um, I mean, it, it's kind of crazy how far we've come mm. in um, in the last 20 years, but also so how so much farther is to go. And and uh, LGBTQ rights in the U.S. are really under fire right now. Oh, yes. And... So at the time of recording this, obviously, the, the Roe versus Wade has just been overturned last week. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously, as Bette Midler tweeted, uh, gays, you're next. Um, yeah, well, um, well, trans, the trans community has been under attack for for well, a long quite time, a while. Yeah. Um, and Alabama is just issuing language where they want to outlaw transitioning for adults. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, there is there is all kinds of of stuff uh, afoot legally um, that the extreme right is is trying to uh, bring us back to or and um, and so uh, there is a there's there's a big fight going on, and it's um, it's exhausting. And uh, luckily, um, the LGBTQ plus community really knows how to create moments of joy, and it's in those moments of joy where the art is transformative and amazing and joyful and fantastic and fabulous and transcendent and so much fun and that is so needed for it's so, so many powerful, people isn't it yeah it's it is really like a form of resistance i bang on about this all the time when i, I you know I, I, my phd i looked at a lot of queer theory and i talked to my students about it and stuff like that but trying yeah. to understand that like you know this queerness is a real form of, of resistance it's so powerful yeah and important and it, and it comes out of the civil rights movement and we have to talk about the queers of color who mm -hmm. said who were energized by what was happening in um in their in their communities and in their families and in the churches and all of that stuff but then and then they bring that uh to to the queer community at large we just have so <laughs> we have so much um so much rich history within that culture and it touches everybody and every everywhere um, what do you think really... about how for example like it's kind of like the queer queerness in a way it has kind of come fa not fashionable can i say that it's kind of like it's going into dominant culture in some ways when we sure. look at the popularity of rupaul's drag race for instance yeah i mean what yeah. do you think about that because like it, when i was on the tube the other the other day i could hear these young women talking about drag race and yeah, it's become so integrated into our culture. I mean, is it lost something, or is it gained? Is it? What do you think? Well, I am a huge fan of Drag Race and have watched every single season from the beginning. Me too. <laughs> so, Me too. <laughs> so, so I love Drag Race um, for what it's done for visibility for queer culture and for drag queens, and I love that somebody like Bianca Del Rio now who. Let's let that siren go by. That's all right. We don't Bianca, mind the siren. You just say the name Bianca Del Rio and the cops show up. Listen, <laughs> this is America right Bianca now. Bianca was, that, she was one of my faves, <laughs> I've got to say. She's amazing. And I mean, I, I saw her at Cherries on the Bay in Cherry Grove in Fire Island 
performing to a room full of 10 people. And then I go, you know, now she's selling out Wembley. And that's that's crazy. To be be able to make a living at that stage for a drag queen is something very new. And so that is, that's what I love. You don't go into drag to make a ton of money. You go into drag because you love it and because you love performing. And so to see these people who honestly, truly love what they do, make money, uh, at a huge, you know, and sometimes hand over fist and uh, make money that they can retire on because there ain't no 401k for a drag queen. That is amazing. And I love that. There is one thing um, that Drag Race has done, which it, it, everything is framed as a competition. So I have seen outside of Drag Race, drag get a little bit competitive mm. and a little bit cunty yeah. in a way that is not, um, concurrent with my experience. Yeah. I come from, uh, there's a show on HBO starring some of the queens from Drag Race, Bob the Drag Queen, Eureka, I and love Shangela. Bob the, um, Bob the Drag Queen is amazing. I think I've got a crush um, on Bob the Drag Queen. Is that okay? I think that's totally okay. I do. I think that's, I think that's quite yeah, all right. Yeah, out of drag, honestly. I just have a crush on him. I know. I love, I love Bob's style. And in and out of drag. I love I love their style. I'm not sure I'm not sure of their pronouns. So I'm just going to use that. I think Bob does amazing stuff. So anyway, so their show is called We're Here. And that is more my experience with drag is it's communal, it's a community. Yes, there are competitive things, but it really was an exchange of ideas and all of us getting together and working on each other's numbers and looks and trading secrets and and you know because oh, you were beauty you, you tips were a drag queen like yourself right tranny shack is that tranny correct shack, yes. yeah in san yes francisco. in san francisco what was your drag queen name then animatronic you... oh it was okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah or ms anna originally and animatronic was a was a like a separate robot character right. um but then like the name is the name's too good so it's just it just became my name because i'm you know like robots so obviously I, we're kind of going a little bit all over the place but i think like the, talking about the drag community is really good we talk about queer community so when you were in that community as as a drag queen how did the the, the community accept you as a woman performing in that way um, as a cis woman, because there were there were trans women who performed yeah. um, as well, right, um, yeah. and um, uh, very very openly. The very first time I went to Tea Shack, there was a cis woman who was the co-host, Dina Davenport, uh-huh. and um, I was part of a of a group of of cis women, uh, queer, bi, straight, who performed and were regulars at Tea Shack. It was a very very open experience. It was highly informed by Jackie 60, also a very, very open experience with lots of uh, what what came to be known at that time as faux queens. As um, And so if you watch something like the Wigstock documentary, yeah, which yeah. was a huge, huge influence for me, the original Wigstock documentary, that was a huge moment for me and people like Chichi Valenti and Keir, Lady Miss Keir was, huge and Kate and Cindy from B-52s, Bette Midler, uh, Grace Jones, you know, those, all those women are drag queens already. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I will, I will say. I mean, Lady Gaga's a drag queen too, right? 
Well, obviously. Well, where yeah. did she get her inspiration from? Exactly. From the women who were also drag queens. Yeah. Madonna, etc. Um, and um, and I will say to my dying breath that drag is an inherent love of women mm-hmm. because women you know 99% of the characters on snatch game are women mm-hmm. you see Shea Coulee win all stars and she says my drag is a love letter to black women mm-hmm. and almost every drag queen that you talk to their first inspiration is a woman is probably their mom or their grandmother or their mm-hmm. aunt or somebody they had in their family who was glamorous and yeah and um yeah and so, so I felt very, very loved and very, 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 very protected. And ultimately, I am so thankful for T-Shack because it gave me a space to um, explore my sexuality mm-hmm. and my gender expression mm. completely and totally safely. Yeah. And this was a community that was rocked and continued to be rocked by HIV and Finally, I was among people my own age who I could be honest about, you know, my life with. Mm. And that was huge. So what year are we talking about? Like what time span were you at at T-Shack? 96 to 99. Just three years, but you know. And that was was before the Scissor Sisters kind of blew up, wasn't it? Just before. That's way before Scissor Sisters was even a glimmer in Jake Shear's eye. Let's see. That was two thousand, wasn't it? Roughly the Scissor Sisters. Well, 96 to 99, and then I joined Scissors in two thousand. at the end of 2001. Aha, right. Because I don't know if you remember. Scissor Sisters wasn't even San Francisco. Scissor Sisters is New York. That was New York, yeah. I'm just trying to put the timeline together. Mm -hmm. So I did, I don't know if you remember, but you probably don't, but I did interview you guys at that time. Very early I do not remember. No, it's okay. (laughs) Why would you? Well, what year was it? I mean, like. it was like 2000 or something. Maybe a bit before, actually. uh, Would have it probably would. I remember you. Were it wouldn't been before two thousand because we weren't together oh, in yeah, two thousand, my dear. Two thousand one. We started. We didn't start traveling into uh, oh. to uh, to the UK until two thousand two. It must have been then. Then it's all a bit of a blur, to be honest. Yeah, and our record didn't come out till two thousand three, and then things really took off in two thousand four. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we. I think the first time we played Brixton was two thousand four. It must have been then. Then. Yeah. So yeah. I would not remember that because that would have been the year we probably did about thousand interviews. interviews. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah. I'm not offended. It's fine. I understand I, my. Place I don't in mean it with any kind of order. offense. I'm... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm only messing around. I'm only messing around. It's it. It's such a blur, you know. And and I mean the... that was kind of like. I mean that was a real roller coaster. I mean obviously you know obviously your, yeah. your time at the T Shack and kind of like. All this, all the that experience of of being a performer, then just kind of made it work when you like joined the sisters, right? Yeah, yeah, because I was the only one with any kind of stage experience and any kind of experience talking to a crowd. You give Jake a mic, and he's like, uh, uh, right, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 uh. But you give him a pen and paper, and he'll sing you the world, right? So, I mean, so what what tells? That that must have been such a roller coaster when you had that hit with "Comfortably Numb." Was the first sort of big hit. Yeah. So what looking back, like what was how how do you feel about it now looking back? Cuz it was kind of like huge, wasn't it? Yeah, it's still it, it kind of feels like a dream mm. a lot of it because it it happens away from your house. So it's not really this it's this weird um it's somewhere in between a dr- oh, I just keep bumping my microphone. That's um, right. It's, it's somewhere <laughs> I'm going to 
The experience was somewhere in between a dream and a cult. So mm. it's kind of like I, I sometimes it's like, oh, wow, I woke up from a dream. And sometimes it's like, oh, wow, I really escaped a cult. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I will. And I've been thinking about like the music industry as an incubator for cults because um, the whole thing is is only set up to reward you if you succeed. And the only people who really succeed in the music industry are the people at this stage because of the way the record industry is set up. I again. Are they coming to get you now, Anna? I must, have, I must have just thought the name Bianca Del Rio. But honestly, that's a trigger, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the only way to succeed in the music industry is to sell millions and millions and millions of records. And the only way to do that is to be super duper mainstream. And you either got to love that kind of music or you got to love the fame. And if you love the fame, there's, a, there's definitely narcissism going on. The narcissism is um, encouraged by the media and the fans and all of that stuff. Then success upon success breeds more success and more narcissism and more considering oneself in the position of uh, culture. Mm -hmm. Where do I fit in that stuff? And that is such an epic mindfuck. Mm. Um, I don't enjoy that part so, of it i mean how did you i mean i guess you just, i quit yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> simple answer all right I, so I, did the band like this, this band because of these pressures we had to take a giant hiatus uh i thought that it would maybe be something that was temporary but i don't know i have a hard time my cat is starting to join us now that's okay i wish i, wish yeah, I could see you it's a, it's a shame um, um, I'm just visualizing uh, it. Is that like you know? I'm trying to see your face in my mind while we're chatting. Yes. Oh, there's boots. What's your Come cat on, called? Right? Oh, we got cats on Bootsy. the list as well. We'll get to that next. Oh yes. What's your boots. cat called? Boots. Bootsy. Bootsy. Yeah, right. or boots, or the big galoot, um, the lumbering oaf. Always, uh, oh, he's, he's me. Of course, uh, he loves to join me when I'm on when I'm talking to people. Um, uh, so yeah, so I thought I thought after being away from tour that I would miss it, uh, but I haven't really gotten there yet. No, I mean <laughs> it's just it's just it's such little fun in a in a pile of pile pile of drudgery. Yeah, and if I wasn't a giant drag queen and I didn't have to haul around all of my drag and you know, take hours to get ready. Well, it's and... that, isn't it? It's kind of a big part. Yeah. I mean, that's, t I mean, I can't even be bothered to do that, like even put makeup on sometimes. It's too much. Yeah. Effort, and but... I did it all. I, there was one tour where I had help with my hair, uh, but. So you um, didn't have any uh, makeup artists with you or anyone? No, 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 no. Wow. No, can't, can't afford the, the space on the bus with all the, all the texts and the equipment so are you guys still close with each other are you still no no <laughs> well, i talk know. to i i see dell uh, i see dell and patty sometimes but i don't yeah well i think it's, no. it's i mean it's kind of you look back at a space in time in your life and that happened then you know and then you just move yeah. on and do new things and meet new people and do you know i think that's kind of the way to look at yeah. it yeah and I mean, I kind of think it think of it in terms of a job because it very much became a job. And so, you know, are you still close with your coworkers from your job to, that you stopped ten years ago? Maybe one or two. Well, not really. No. Right. I mean, I never really had and, a proper job. And so. <laughs> being on tour is like taking your entire office and putting it on a bus. Oh it's my not God. like 
friends and family and blah blah no, blah. No, so it's office politics. Right. You'll be you'll be on tour with people you genuinely do not like. Oh my god, that sounds <laughs> horrible. And then sometimes you have to share a bus with them. That's, you know, that's and I'm not I'm not talking about necessarily people in the band, but they'll be but you know the, 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 the team. but they'll be you know. And you have to be switched on all the time, right? As well, so that's quite. It's stressful. very. It's yeah. I find a lot. I question the amount of performing that I do in my life. Mm. I think that people are are demanded performance you know you have to perform at your job you have to be a functioning performing citizen you have to perform your you know your there's a there's a point where uh if you decide to be a performer you can get tired of being the performer um because then people sort of expect you to be on all the time and and um and uh yeah uh, I mean, so, so would you call yourself a performer from, like, is that your identity? Is that who you are? Or I call you... myself an artist. Okay. Um, I call myself an artist because that's a very blanket term because there are visual things that I do. Um, and and I also, I think I'm kind of a storyteller because I really, really love history. <laughs> Here we go. Um, and, I, and I have a really... Um, I have an aptitude for it. I remember things very, very well. I have very, very good recall. I'm reading The Last Party and correcting it. Okay, good. You should send it to the publisher with some corrections on it. Here are my oh notes. My God. Can you imagine me like taking Anthony Hayden Guest oh, to task <laughs> over details? <laughs> well, so you that post guy. It, post it with uh, some notes attached to it. Yeah. Oh my God, hilarious. There And I've, I've done it in a couple of other books too where I'm like, that's not right. Or like, that's the wrong date. There was one one disco book that got the date of Stonewall wrong. Oh like, my god! What are, what are you doing? <laughs> I yes. mean, what? Because I really love reading about the history of of disco. Why are Why are we interested in it? What does it mean to us and to you? This this well, idea of like really understanding like what happened. I think any genre of music is also a, a story of of the time you know you talk about jazz you talk about the you know the the 1920s in new orleans and that kind of culture and and before obviously and when you talk about disco you talk about the history of philadelphia and new york and chicago and detroit and then you start getting over into London and the UK and Germany and Munich and Italy and of course you can't leave out the Caribbean and the African influences no, and absolutely. all of this yeah it, it, it is a world music and there is a world influence to to it and it became codified and gave us what we now know as dance culture mm -hmm. and so I love the music to start with um, and I really think that there's something um, beautiful about disco because it's dance music made with full-on instrumentation and 40-piece orchestras and there's just which a, rarely um, happens now doesn't it so it well because you just can't afford it's it it's expensive and I know someone it's crazy expensive my friend's trackers my friend I have a friend Sophie Lloyd who makes like uses live streams. oh my god I'm so obsessed with Sophie Lloyd oh, she's so amazing oh okay well she, she I've just been cat sitting for her last week actually. oh, oh nice but she said that someone listened to her track and said that sounds expensive I thought that was really interesting that sounds expensive yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you can, and that was always something that we were after with Scissor Sisters was warmth. We wanted to sound warm. And there were so many times where we were just recording into a really crappy mic because we wanted, um, or, or in, not in a recording booth in a, in a room with lots of room because we wanted something that sounded like, an old Motown record or, um, you know, something off of factory records, an ESG record or something like that. And so many of those things, like there's the Marvin Gaye song, um, uh, Can I Get a Witness? And you can actually hear a delay on his vocal. It's like, I don't know if it's an artifact in the tape or it's like you're hearing someone's playback through their mic. I don't know, but it's it's amazing. It's, you know, those little artifacts and stuff like that make a song. Left alone by the one you love and never home. I love too hard. Are my friends sometimes safe? But I believe, I believe that a woman should be loved that way. Reading about the history of all that time, and I mean, that's the, the whole technical aspect of that is where we learn about how records are made, right? Yeah, and and how music is enjoyed because somebody like Larry Levan wasn't just uh, somebody who played records. He's he designed bass bins that are still yeah. used today. So there is a there's a really really rich history in disco that covers um, LGBTQ plus history, civil rights, uh, R and B music history, mm. um, world music history, mm-hmm. and um, and DJ culture, and the first people who started beat matching oh and my blending God. No, things. Totally. And Nicky Siano was he? Was he? He's been. Was he the first? Nicky Siano is is definitely one of one of the pioneers. David Mancuso. He didn't make uh, Nicky Siano, he, Francis yeah. Grasso. Oops. Yeah. Uh, there's so many people. Uh, Richie Kazor, who was the the DJ at. Studio 54 uh, and Roy Thode. His little moment was my favorite part of the Studio 54 exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum, which I wasn't super into, but they had this case with Roy Thode's uh, BPM Bible in it, which was basically like all the songs and the BPMs that they were and like kind of these his notes on the songs. And I was just like, smash, grab, I want this. It's just so fascinating, isn't it? It's like Mm. looking back and seeing how technology has evolved. But it, it, and a lot of those people died yeah. um, with the with the HIV AIDS crisis. So a lot of that wisdom was kind of lost or some of that wisdom was lost and it wasn't as well preserved as it could have been because it was kind of seen as, you know, a gay thing or just stupid disco. Disco sucks. You know, I know. Kind of so, I mean, and also it's interesting when we're thinking about looking at history of disco and how it's documented, you know, there's been quite a lack of visibility of, of women who are active in that scene at the time well unless they were singers you know um i think it's totally fine to say that the voice of dance music is a female voice um and you know i've spoken to people like ralphie rosario about this subject and he he doesn't want he only wants to work with female vocalists Mm -hmm. so and and we have to go a step further to say that that is a black woman's voice that is a gospel trained black woman's voice and that voice has become the standard by which all vocalists are measured today yeah so disco really gave us uh those high soaring amazing you know gospel driven harmonies that are at work today thank you Beyonce break my soul you know that is happening still happening today and we were it's still it's still here and you know artists like 
shapeshifters still make sure. disco Absolutely. and defected is oh, a yeah. label that one i mean glitterbox 100 percent disco yeah and um my God, Dames Brown from oh, Detroit. Oh, Brown, like, who Sophie's worked with. They're great. I yeah. know. I know. I love them so much. They're like, you know, LaBelle Redux. I just am so into them. So, yeah, so there is so much to learn about disco. And there are so many books about it that that teach you so many different aspects. And um, I have a, di I have a, actually have a disco shelf. I have like eight titles that I really, really love. <laughs> so what books would you say are absolute must reads? I, I, I feel like the I need three, to read more. There's three at the top. The two of them are by Tim Lawrence. Which, Love Saves the Day yeah. and the follow-up Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor. And I had him floor, on the podcast a few months ago. So. I love him so much. He's yep. such a delightful, delightful, crazy, crazy. And I love his books. I love his writing. His his books are so amazing and they really are the 360 degree yep. spherical journey of history. It's not linear, it's spherical. And, and that's that's the that is the approach to history that I think is so correct and what is so nice about his, history his, that is being written today. Well, his approach, I think I read it as, as someone calling it like community journalism. It, or it's kind I, of... I think that's a great and that's a great assessment because yeah. it is very much that he really, really creates context for you. And we we're losing yeah. that so much in the Internet age. And then the, the third one, which is, is so good, is Hot Stuff. Disco and the Remaking of American Culture by Alice Eccles. Alice Eccles is a is a feminist uh, writer primarily, but she was a DJ back in the day in 1980, and I think she was in uh, Michigan in Ann Arbor or something. Right, I'm literally and, um, typing that into Amazon as we speak. She really talks about it from a woman's perspective and how right. instrumental disco was in redefining masculinity. Yeah, and. Um, empowering femininity of uh, bringing the gospel diva out of the church so she can express her sexuality yeah um uh, and of centering female pleasure in sexuality yeah there's a really amazing moment i don't think she talks about it but i actually it was her book that made me hear it there's this moment in love and C minor by sarone where he's he's getting it on with three girls right that's the whole like basis uh -huh. like there's this whole like you know oh look at him mm, hey girl you know like they're looking him up and down and it's like where are you from lots of places you know what's your name Saron? you know and then they start they start going off and there's all the panting and sex noises right and um there's there there's a part where one of the women says no no and and you can hear that you can hear he stops and he's like are you okay? And and that that little are you okay is an endorsement of consent oh in the God, disco yes. age that I am obsessed with yeah, and I yeah. love it and I love Sarone for that and that I think is an excellent demonstration of of that sort of change of really pleasuring women and giving give making sex a um, enjoyable experience for her as well. Thinking about the context of the time in the sort of like mid to late seventies, eighties, it was dominantly men, dominantly men going to these to Paradise Garage and clubs. Or am I wrong? 
You are wrong. Okay. Um, there were there were many. Well, first Paradise Garage had a straight night and a gay night. It did, so yeah. the straight night was Friday and the gay night was Saturday. Um, most of these places were membership clubs. Yeah. So there were tons of women on the membership rolls. Pre Stonewall, you could not dance in a room full of just men. That was illegal. There used to be lifeguard chairs in dance clubs with people like looking and making sure that there was no sexual contact on the dance floor. Well, I knew about that, but I didn't know about the, the being actually observed. So, oh yeah. Crazy. So you there, and this was the constant source of police raids and yeah, uh, and all of that. And so, um, and that, that was the thing that kicked off Stonewall, you know? And so there have always been women there. There Now, when you're talking about places like The Saint, yeah. which were which were men-only spaces, uh-huh. yes, you're talking about a room full of men, but, uh, but then you can talk about somebody like Sharon White, who is, you know, a black, I, yep. a black woman DJ, who is the, I think, the only DJ to DJ at The Saint and Paradise Garage. Well, yeah, and the, exactly, and she hasn't really been written about properly. So. No, and she absolutely 100% needs her due. She certainly needs her due, and, and like the community lost Gail Sky King recently, right, who's another yeah. important um, person in that scene. Yeah. So the, yeah, so I'm really I'm yeah, all these kind of women who are active as DJs in that scene should be documented more. DJs and then you have somebody I mean Judy Weinstein is somebody oh, who's gosh. so important yeah. and Carmen D'Alessio uh made Studio 54. So for um, for the listeners who may not know, so uh, Judy Weinstein, do you want to tell tell the listeners about oh, who she was do, and why she was so important and powerful? Yeah, I mean, let's uh, let's pull let's pull up her her wiki. She she was on the business side of things and on the record company side of things, and since the seventies, and she was a loft denizen. Started out at the loft, uh, which is David Mancuso. David Mancuso is kind of the the all roads lead to him. He's, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's the Rome of of dance music, and she assisted David with the running of the very first DJ record pool. Um, and she has always been involved in DJ culture, and she was uh, highly involved with Paradise Garage. And didn't she do the uh, bookings for the live acts there? I believe so. I believe. Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. So, and she's one of those people who show. You know, you see her in group photos, and she's all over. You know, there are so many people like that. The you know the music industry and the club community is is just that it's 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 big and and isn't just about the people making the music or playing the music it's the promoters it's the it's the people on the dance floor who keep coming back it's the club kids it's the lighting people it's the people who make the flyers it's everything so where would you go now to try and sort of get that experience again? Is there anywhere in New York? Well, you yeah, you have to you have to make it and you have to find it and yeah. and um and yeah, they exist. Um I am part of a of a family for this club Wet Noise, which is all disco and funk. Um primarily 1970s. We rarely play anything newer than like 1983. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah. where is that? Is that in Brooklyn? That happens in here in New York in Manhattan, okay. and and um, there are still there are still uh, places you just have to find them. And and 
you know, luckily there are still people like Suzanne Barsh who are doing things. And of course, Lady Fag is amazing and throwing giant parties. And there's still, you know, there's still stuff on Fire Island. And there's um, Q nightclub that just opened up that's kind of bringing back a kind of super club energy. And uh, there's a new place, Red Eye, that's opening up um, not too far away from where Studio 54 used to be. There are still places and you can still find that. And people are still chronicling all of this. I just got a book. Museum of Art and Design. It's Powerhouse Books. Jake Usna, The Fun. And it's a it's a, sort of a club chronicle, mostly pictures. And there's a picture of me in it. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> what are like, you doing oh, in look, it? look, there it is. Um, I'm posing for a picture I'm at a party called Spank. And it was actually the party that inspired uh, the opening of Let's Have a Kiki. Because I, I got there and it was pissing down rain and the cops had shut the party down. And... I blagged my way in. I said, if you, I said, I am part of the lighting crew. If you let me into this party, I can help break it down much faster. And so they let me in. Oh my God. That's such a good, good blag. That's brilliant. Yeah. I really, yeah, I do. I do pretty well with authority figures. Well, How does the Scissor Sisters sound fit in with the history of, of New York disco? Oh, well, because we were crazily influenced by it. Yeah. I mean, we took we took Comfortably Numb and made it into a disco song. And um, we and that classic disco sound was always something that we hello, loved. Hello, hello, hello. Is there anybody in there? disco scene the electric clash scene was 100 yeah. centered around uh, a dance floor or at least it was where we we are there was there were kind of two camps of of the the electric clash scene there was the larry t and spencer product um scene that was centered around lux and brooklyn and then there oh, was the kind of like muso straight dude yeah um the rapture lcd sound system which yeah. was Based around the I was in New York at that time. I Manhattan. was living with Larry T. Oh wow! That's when I met you guys again. There's a big electric crash thing. It was. It's at the Webster Hall, was it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. And because I, I, you know, I literally turned up to the Lux Club from London in just like jeans and a t-shirt, and I just felt like the complete antithesis of the what was happening there. At oh, the we time. were working Luke's. Yeah, you were working Luke's. I wasn't the whole way it through. It was Luke's. It was asymmetrical hair and I lots know, I of... I felt so plain at that time. Lots of cut-up DIY couture, hot glue tour, and um, pointy, pointy shoes. I mean, that's so really... Pointy. I mean, that's that's dragtastic, isn't it, really? Oh, the, I mean, our, our scene was 100% super draggy, trans... Fabulous, androgene, non-binary, chic. There were so <laughs> there were so many uh, drag queens and trans ladies and because you you guys performed, yeah. didn't you, at Lux at, at Larry's night? Oh yeah, you? all the yes, time. I remember, yeah, all the time. Yeah, and and I mean, when you talk about Electroclash, you talk about people like Amanda Lepore and Sophia yeah. Lamar and yeah. Latigra and JD Sampson and, and I really like uh, do you remember, uh, remember Abney D. 
prompts. Of course, yeah. Oh I God. loved Contra Pussy. Contra so Pussy was brilliant. great. Oh my Contra God, Pussy what was happened great. to prompts? Do you know? Um, I the last time I saw Spencer, it was at I was at a funeral for for a mutual friend of ours. Um, and I I don't know what he's up to now, but yeah, I think I think Larry T is really kind of the only. Well, he's still plugging away. He's still yeah, working. he's still plugging away. And Doing, yeah, yeah. it's funny. Line. It's funny because we were kind of the outlier of the scene because of the sort of what I call the country bears sort of flavor of scissors. Ultimately, that kind of like honky tonk thing worked against us in the electroclash scene, but it worked for us on the on the world stage. Yeah, there were times where I didn't I didn't really feel like the band was cool, quote unquote cool enough uh, for the electroclash scene. Well, I felt like that in general. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it wasn't really cool. We weren't anyway. really interested in being cool. We were actually a lot more interested in being warm. Yeah, that's yeah. oh, I like that. That's really yeah. good. That's good. I think being cool yeah. is totally overrated. It just, it just, I, well, I, I think ugh. I think when you're when you're not cool, then you're never going to be cool. But you can be old and cool. But it, being old and uncool, then you're really uncool. So how do we be old and cool? How do we do that? I'm just planning you ahead. Ask Debbie Harry. Oh my God, Grace Jones. <laughs> I want to be like Grace Jones when I'm 74. Yeah, oh Grace Jones. She's goals. cool as shit. Marianne Faithful, ask her. Oh. I think you stop giving a fuck. Stop I think that's giving how you... a fuck, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So you, well, you've done so much. So obviously you've been at the forefront of a, a hugely successful band. Now I'm trying to <laughs> segue into your love of cats. Because yes. Because the big outside world, all its performance, it's, it's so much work. And then obviously this idea of being with a cat at home is com the complete opposite of that. It's it a totally is. different there, space. There is a very large part of me that loves to be at home and loves to cook and just, yeah, not go anywhere and have a dinner party or just, yeah, lay in bed with my cat all day reading books. Um, my husband calls me the most cat-like person he's ever met. Um, so, what, so what what does that mean then, being a cat, you know? what well, You as a I, person, you are cat-like. I do not have to travel very far to entertain myself. Okay. And I can take a nap anywhere. And I love nothing more than a the right combination of sunlight and shade. And I love a good grooming session. And I'm all about the exchange of love. That's really, it's really, yeah. What Are all cats cat -like? Tell us about your cat. Is, is your cat Bootsy still on is your lap? the best. Um, we found Bootsy in the in the forest. Actually, my friends uh, have a house in the Catskills, and we were up there. See Catskills. There's a pond. Catskills. Hey. <laughs> um, two years ago, and they had at the time they had two very elderly, very one had cancer and. The other was blind and had some neurological problems. They were like eight, you know, 17 and 18 year old cats. And so anyway, so uh, that they were Gracie and Esther. Gracie and Esther were in the house and we went up to the Catskills with our friend Peter. And as we pull into their house, this cat face pops up out of the grass. And I'm like, that's not Gracie or Esther. Who's that? And they're like, oh, that's that's Bedelia. I'm like, what is that name? I'm like that's Bedelia. I'm like, okay, what's the story with Bedelia? 
They said, well, we were calling him Buddy, but then the neighbors told us that he was a she. So now we're calling her Bedelia. What is the story with Bedelia? And they're like, oh, we don't know. She's just been kicking around. Our neighbor says she's been kicking around for about three years. I'm like, this cat has been stray in the cat skills for three years? They're wow. like, yeah, we think so. And his entire back half was covered in mats. And he's like a big fluffy cat, like a Norwegian forest cat or Maine Coon or something, just huge, fluffy, enormous paws. And so we were like, oh, this poor cat. And he had a really horrible respiratory infection, just gobs. How did he manage for three years? I do not know. And I don't know if it was really that long, but they said they said they had seen him around for a couple oh of my summers. God. And so we were like, this cat really needs some TLC, needs to go to the vet, needs some grooming and needs some help. And I think because my my friends were so occupied with the health care of their own cats, they couldn't they didn't really have the bandwidth for this other cat. And it wasn't really their responsibility. So and this is the height of covid. So Seth and I, my husband, we were we're like, OK, we'll we'll take on this cat because our amazing cat, Izzy had passed in 2018 and we were kind of ready. And once the pandemic hit, I was like, hey, want to foster some cats? Of course. <laughs> it looks like we're going to be home for a little while. Isn't it time to get a cat again? Anyway, and so, um, and Seth had this, had this attitude of the cat will find us. And he certainly did. And so this cat was extremely friendly and really loving and, over the course of, of four days, Seth managed to cut off all of his mats and get Oof. all of the mats off of him. Um, weirdly, he didn't have any fleas or ticks, so somebody had put some flea medicine on, on him that was keeping them away, so that was good. That's a good sign, yeah. But he was just the sweetest, sweetest cat. And I was like, we gotta come up with a better name than Bedelia, because that's a terrible name, unless we're gonna call her Bonnie and her name's going to be Bonnie Bedelia after the amazing actress Bonnie Bedelia. But that just was not consensus. And Bonnie Pointer had just passed away. So I was like, what about Bonnie Pointer? Come on, name Bonnie. And um, they're like, now. So then I was just <laughs> looking, looking at these giant white paws. And I was like, your name is Bootsy. That's such a good name. I was and looking then, after Bootsy Collins. Yeah. But well, it, you know, funk is never far from my mind. No the uncut funk of the p-funk came down and struck me i was i had made a mothership connection and i looked at that cat and said your name is bootsy he fully earned the name bootsy but yeah he's 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 somewhat named after bootsy Collins. So what do you think what can cats give what do cats give you that humans can't what's the connection what's the love there well it's unconditional and i think that there's something very powerful about having um having something to take care of whether it's a child or plants or pets or uh, all of the above. Um, I think there's something uh, powerful in a creature that needs you. I just really, really enjoy a cat in my lap and a book in my hand and, you know, a nice cup of tea. And that is, that's just bliss. There is something so beautiful to me about the sound of purring. And I really like this the kind of mellow energy of a cat i love dogs i i love love dogs i think they're so awesome um but they there's the psychology of the dog that is like 
you know, just kind of constant and you will love me and here's it's a, a toy more and all of that. Isn't it, with the dog? That constant attention is not really necessarily my lane and probably also why I never had kids. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, I, um, I understand that too. And and um yeah, cats come when they when they want to and they leave you alone when they don't and they're rather self-sufficient and they're just a constant source of love, entertainment and um yeah, and fulfillment. I well, feel I very to, fulfilled. Well, last when I week, have a cat. as I said, I had to look after Sophie's cat for a week, and that, What's I felt her cat's it, name? I felt it was Kitty, but I felt quite a lot of responsibility <laughs> okay. actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I I keep the cat alive, remember to feed it, and give it water. And, yes, you know. Yes, and I kind the of occasional miss, I kind of miss, and a little. I kind of missed her when I got home back to my the one plant that I have in my house, and then I was like, oh, yeah. there's no cat here now. It's just kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. They they definitely add a lot to a home. And in New York, it's great to have a cat because, you know, we get mice or critters or whatever. And Bootsy, I've never seen. I've never. That cat just eats them. Like a lot of cats will just play with a mouse and leave you just like a headless torso. That was Izzy. That's what Izzy would do, our last cat. Um, but Bootsy just eats the whole damn oh, thing. Oh, stop! Gag. Like, like found a big <laughs> old roach, and no, I'm like, "Oh, no, Boots, no, get it!" And no, then the, I, no, I look no, over, I'm and not he's listening. Stop! It down. <laughs> I'm like, "Wow, oh. you really were a wild man." Oh, One of his God. nicknames is Grizzly Cadams. Because oh, he's just <laughs> oh, he's I, a little I just mountain hate boy. All that stuff. I think that yeah, that just makes me just like want to throw up. Yuck. Well, it's you know, at least the... you're not left any remnants lying around the flat, right? Around that is, yeah, yeah. He's not the best mouser. He is, he's not as graceful and lithe and killer as Izzy was. I call him the big galoot or the lumbering oaf. He's just kind of like, kind of like, not very graceful. He's not the, he loves the chase. He will take forever to kill the mouse and it usually gets away. He's definitely not the killer that Izzy was. Um, and so sometimes I just think that he has to be hungry <laughs> in order to actually kill it. Because he's like, oh, I don't know if I want to eat this whole thing. Oh, God, yuck. yuck. Right? Ooh. Oh, I can't believe this. We've run, we're, like, we're running out of time. The time has just flown by an hour already. Um, well. And there's still more things that I wanted to talk to you about. But there was actually one well. thing I wanted to talk to you about in the beginning, but we mm. didn't get around to it, was about your tattoo. Because I'm think I'm in the process of trying to decide about a new tattoo. Oh, and wow. you've yeah. got a good one, haven't you? You've got like a bionic circuit on your I've arm, is that my, right? Yeah, yeah, sort of half, half sleeve bionic arm, yeah. So how many how many tattoos have you got? Um, I mean, I suppose I just count that as one, but that was over several years and several sessions. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five. I, only, I have five. I have five, and they're uh, most of them are really small. And uh, yeah, do you have any? I've got two. Is this a new? Uh huh. But I want so, a new one. So I've got like I've got some ideas. It's just yeah. Hmm. I just wonder if you had any advice for me about how to. Like... My advice is to go to a good artist, get them to draw it out, pay for the design, yeah, then sit with it for a while like yeah. sit with it for like almost a year that's what i did with almost every tattoo my my whole my idea was if i like it in a year i'll 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 like it in you can't several. rush these things can you no i don't think it's right to rush it no um and um and yeah so i that's 
that's my advice. Okay, thank you. I just yeah, you know, that was just my own personal gain. I just wanted to yeah. ask you about that. Yeah, and and trust trust your ta- trust the tattoo artist. Go to somebody who's oh, working yeah. really I've, love. I've actually got someone yeah. I I love in Malmo in Sweden. So I'm actually gonna, oh wow, I just love his work. So I'm going to go there, and he's hopefully he's going to fit me in to do it. Oh, I great. think that you, I think it's worth traveling, isn't it, to go to someone who you think if is you really love talented. if you love their work, yeah. you will love their work on you. That's For that's sure. definitely the. So what does your day? So what does your what's the rest of the week looking like for you? I'm highly in research. Ooh, speaking of history, uh, for um, I am launching a podcast, and that's pretty much all I can say about it. Other oh, than can't it you is give us history any, based. Oh, it's history based. Okay, it is a history based podcast. So oh. uh, it'll be it'll be me yakking. Well, you're, you're yakking very about good history. at yakking. You're, you're, <laughs> I, I have to say, <laughs> and you very know, good. Uh, taking cues from somebody like Tim Lawrence or Alice Eccles or. Um, Karina Longworth, whose podcast, you must remember this, I love. I'm trying to, to bring some interesting perspective and maybe some, some aspects of history that are not as fully explored. So Interesting. Okay, yeah. so we got that to look forward to. We didn't get to talk about technology, but that's for another time. But I just think yeah. the whole gender tech thing is just, not just gender, but the whole technology thing is really interesting. It is, yeah. Um, and it, and I'm, I, yeah, it's, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot. And we just couldn't too. fit it in this time, but m- yeah. maybe another time. Well, maybe I can come back once the podcast launches. Yeah, definitely. I just, uh, I mean, because I'm really interested in Donna Haraway, and I know that you draw, oh, draw, love her. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, she's really interesting. Very difficult to read. It's very dense. Very dense, yeah. very difficult to read. I definitely have to read with a pen and yeah. um, look things up and. Uh, read every paragraph at least twice <laughs> yeah really I've, I've read a lot oh, yeah. but her stuff is quite quite tricky but I mean a lot of those a lot of those academic things like Joseph Campbell is also one of those that's like oh Jesus tits this is really like oh, here with I... a thousand faces is is earth shattering but first you gotta like get in there with your chisel and really like oh my okay, god and that's the trouble with academic writing yeah yeah that's a whole other conversation but i I like to write in a way that's accessible and that people can actually 100 percent. and and i i think that that's one of the reasons why academia is so is seen as so elitist and and is because it's you know impenetrable there is an impenetrable thing. So that's that's one of the things that we talk about with the podcast is making wet history as opposed to dry history oh i love that yeah I love that. Yeah. I'm going to be, that's definitely up my street then. Yeah, great. Oh, it's definitely going to be up your street. Trust oh, definitely, me. <laughs> definitely. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, thanks ever so much, Anna. It's been lovely Thank chatting you. to you. Um, you as well. Thank you. Thanks so much and see you soon. Yes, I hope so. Okay, bye. Bye. We're lovely. We're lovely. Follow me down. Deep down, we're lovely. Just signing off for the... <laughs> For the recording. Yes, for the podcast, yes. <laughs> There's always that weird bit at the end where you just have to sign off. It's just, yeah. No, seriously, thanks ever so much. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Really nice Thank you. I'm chat. so happy we could make this work. And had <laughs> your, your pal Bishy was on the last pod- podcast. Oh, I love her so much. She's, She's great. Such a good egg. We had a brilliant chat. Such a nice person. Right. Well, I'm going to go. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much. Just, it was we could so go much on fun. for ages, couldn't we? But we oh, can't, unfortunately. I can definitely go on for ages. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but it's been really fun. Thanks so much, Anna. It's Thank been lovely. you. Have, enjoy Talk- your day.
Huge thanks to the charismatic and super fun Arna Mantronic. Do check out the links in the show blurb to further explore all the interesting books and topics we have discussed. This is sadly the last episode in this series, so I'm so sorry to say goodbye to you, but don't worry, I'll be back pretty soon with a spanking new season two with more engaging guests from the creative industries. This podcast was produced and edited by me. Remember, if you like this podcast, do please leave a review on whichever platform you use and share with your friends. And do follow me at Dr. Lulu LeVay. And remember, I love you.